Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this is a big one this week. Now, regular listeners know that I have I have a holy trinity when it comes to music, and that is David Bowie, Neil Finn, and Hall & Oates. That's the cream of the crop for me personally. And this week, we get to talk to the John Oates. So John has had a very busy last year. Last spring, he put out his memoir. It's called Change of Season. It's really good. If you're a Hall & Oates fan, you've got to read this book. It is their story from his perspective. There's not. It's all basically kind of how it affected him, what was going on with him. He was not speaking for Daryl in that situation. Excellent book. Last summer, they, they uh, completed a very successful tour with Tears for Fears, which I was able to see here in Denver. That was great. And in fact, I talked to John maybe two weeks ago, and since then they've announced that this summer they will be going out with Train. So that's going to be fun. Uh, he moved to Nashville, which if you've read the book is actually kind of a really big deal, and we talk about that in here too. And then now, uh, this week... February 2nd, this Friday, a couple of days from now, he's going to be releasing his new solo album called Arkansas. We're going to play a couple songs from Arkansas in this interview. You'll notice that it, I've had a chance to hear it, and it's really good. It's very it's very Americana. It's rooted in like roots music, uh, bluegrass, blues, more, ru more rustic, uh, which if you've been paying attention to his solo stuff, that's he's been kind of going that direction anyway so it's probably not that big of a surprise so this interview is it was a little tricky because i we we only had 30 minutes and bless his heart he gave me a few extra minutes so we got about 35 minutes or so out of this and in that time we had to cover the new album which we did we talked about the book we talked about hall and oat stuff of course i had to know some of those things and then we, you know, I wanted to talk to him about the songs that in the Hall & Oates canon that he specifically was in charge of. They were his babies. And so we touch on all of that stuff in 35 minutes. I, you know, I'm sure he's been asked every question under the sun. I really tried my hardest to bring in some unique things that maybe he hasn't had to, you know, regurgitate over and over and over again. Hopefully you guys learn some new things, some new colors about John Oates, and hopefully you get you get turned on to this new Arkansas album, which comes out in a few days. So I'm actually kind of proud of this one. I felt like we did the very best we could with what short amount of time we had. I could have talked to him for hours. So hope you enjoyed this. He called me from his home in Nashville. So for starters, the thing that I think is really interesting is that Having read your book, you know, half that book basically is dedicated to how moving to Colorado kind of saved your life. And yet you've recently moved to Nashville. Why? What brought that on? Well, you know, life moves in phases. Um, as I've gotten older, I, I, I began to see, and especially after having written the book and, and going back in time and, and revisiting a lot of things in detail, I realized there was us, there's, you know, it seems like my life is divided into 20-year chunks. You know, I moved from New York to Pennsylvania, grew up there till I was about 20 years old, and then moved to Philadelphia and then again to New York and lived in New York for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Then moved to Colorado and lived in Colorado for 20 years. Now I'm living in Nashville, and um, I, I, I guess if things hold, uh, if I live long enough, I'll be here for 20 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So I don't know. I don't know. That's the. I don't know if that's my cosmic pattern that, that's sure. established. But it was just you know it was a moment in my in my life when I moved to Colorado that it, it saved me in, in so many ways yeah. because I was in a I was in a pop star rut that uh, was not going to to get better and it was only going to uh, you know kind of um, yeah. go down and yeah. and. Uh, by moving to Colorado, I got a chance to reinvent myself and, and re, you know, and, and live a, you know, live an amazing, uh, healthy, uh, unique life in the mountains and make new friends and just basically realign my whole way of, of living. And so, uh-huh. you know, and having met my wife, you know, have, had a kid, built a house and, and, you know, all the things that are in the book. And yeah. then, you know, then there came a time our son moved out. He moved on, you know, away on his own. He's going to college and working. And my wife and I were ready for the next phase. And I was, I began to get re-energized um, musically. Mm-hmm. And much of that happened because of, of my frequent trips to Nashville in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And so it was a natural progression to move here to Nashville. And, and really, it's been another amazing experience and just as profound and, and, and important to me uh, as the change that happened when I moved to, from New York to Colorado, okay. uh, but in a, com- in a completely different way. Are you living out in the boonies again? Are you, are you still no, in the mountains or are no, you more suburban this time? No, no, it's the exact opposite. We're living in the city. We're right ah. in, this, in, in the heart of the city. But we have our own little uh, urban sanctuary, you know, that's Got kind it. of private. Sure. But at the same time, we're, we've we have access to uh, all the things that the, the cool things about living in a city, and and uh, at the same time, you know, Nashville has a has a has a kind of a country feel. No, no yeah. pun intended. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I wondered if your if your music was either influencing the move to Nashville or vice versa, because your solo for a guy who was a part of one of the most pioneering rock groups or however you want to define you and Daryl's relationship of all time. Your solo stuff is always so rustic and, you know, based on there's bluegrass, there's country, there's kind of blues influences. Why do you think that is? Would you, is that the music that you relate to personally more so maybe than the, the pop or the new wave or whatever it else it, it was that you guys were sort of pioneering back in the day? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think what you're hearing now from me is actually who I really am. Oh, police officer, now, how can that be? You can't arrest everybody but you, afraid of Staggerly. He's a bad man, cruel old Staggerly. Billy the lion told Staggerly, now, please don't take my life. I got three children and darling, lovely wife. You a bad man. I don't care about your children, I don't care about your wife, no. But you done stole my steps and had now, I'm gonna take your life. I'm a bad man. I think what happened, you know, what happened in, just like, just like what happens in any relationship, whether you know, regardless whether it's a marriage, you know, a long-term mm-hmm. partnership like I have with Daryl, you begin to lose a, a certain part of yourself in that a collaboration, in that partnership. You yeah. begin to blend with the partner in, in some way or another, sometimes for the better, sometimes not for the better. 
in this case, I think it was for the better. It was it was 100% positive because I explored things and became something that I never expected to be, never really actually wanted to be, but actually enjoyed the ride, especially during a period of time when it was a great time to be a, a rock star sure. in the 70s and the 80s, as opposed to now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was really a chance to be more experimental, to step outside my comfort zone musically. Mm-hmm. But then my, you know, my getting back to Nashville in the 90s, after Daryl and I kind of slowed down, it reawoken the early, my earliest influences, and it reawoken the, the, the things that made me want to be a musician as a, as, a, as a kid, which really were kind of put to the side during this, yeah. uh, you know, this crazy Hall and Oates, you know, uh, rocket ship ride. Yeah. So it's been like a rebirth, a musical rebirth for me. But yet at the same time, incredibly comfortable and incredible. You know, I feel I feel very com- comfort in comfortable in that space. Sure. And yeah. I've all also been able to surround myself with players and musicians who also come from that same place because this is a whole city. Nashville is basically a city full of them. So. Um, I found this incredible niche in my in Americana in the genre of Americana with Americana musicians and players who have embraced me and have really kind of helped me uh, realize this kind of reawakening of of my earliest influences. That's killer. You mentioned about people you're playing with. Stan Bush is on your new album. He's been around forever and he's a legend. Did you know him already, or did you have to kind of call him up and say, "Hey, will you come play on my album?" <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. It was 2007, uh-huh. and um, I had made one solo album, but I had made it in Colorado and New York and, and L.A. I just kind of bounced around trying some things. I didn't feel it was very focused, and it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but I got it out of my system, mm-hmm. and that was in 2001. Uh, and then in 2007, I had written a bunch of songs that I thought felt really personal. They were very folky in a way. And I just knew, I just had a sense that Nashville was the right place to do it. So I began to reach out through mutual friends. Uh, you know, who, who's an engineer I can use? I found an engineer named Bill Vorndick who uh, took me around to all the studios. And he, you know, was a, you know, he engineered people like Johnny Cash and, uh, you know, Bela Fleck and, uh-huh. you know, and Sam and Jerry Douglas and people like that. Uh, and through him, I began to, uh, and, and some other mutual friends, I said, well, you know, hey, who 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 can I get to play mandolin? They say, well, have, have you thought of Sam Bush? I went, wow, that's an idea. <laughs> and I literally called Sam Bush and said, hey, I want to make this record. Would you like to play on it? And he said, yeah, man, this would be great. Let's do it. Yeah. And same same with Jerry Douglas and Bela Fleck and and right. um, Nathan Chapman, who went went on to produce uh, Taylor Swift's records, who at the time was just an up and coming young guitar player and producer. You know, and I had all, I had this kind of uh, assembled this superstar cast of of great players in nashville and i literally walked in and that making that record that record uh was um thousand miles of life thousand miles of life it it changed it changed it changed me completely because i thought oh my okay this is okay now i can do this and i said okay this is where i'm going to be and that was really the door that opened then since that time People like Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush have become some of my best friends here in town, Good. and we social, you know, we socialize, uh, we, we play together, we work together, uh, and it's just been a, a really great thing. So, and then you know, of course, that that circle of musicians, you know, kind of exponentially yeah. expanded the longer I've been here. Got it. You know, this is I'm thinking as you mentioned, this is the downside of having digital copies of music because 
I didn't. I own these on, uh, you know, on iTunes or whatever. I didn't. I don't have the liner notes to go in and know that you and Sam's relationship goes back years. Just yeah. another reason why people should buy CDs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you anyway, got you got it. So let's talk about Arkansas because this is a great song. There's a faded gold along the Great River Road One down farmhouse hanging on a broke down porch Looking over miles and miles and miles Walk along the levee silhouetted by a crescent For the clock strikes noon Don't you know the days and nights Dreams drift slowly by Another delta dawn Hope worth waiting on Where that old man little flow the snow white cotton fields of Arkansas head There's a long black train running on the I have to admit, it took me a minute to even be 100% sure that it was you. Because your voice, <laughs> so, and I wasn't sure, you know, for, I hope this isn't too insensitive of a question, but, you know, when people get older and they've been singing for 50 years, their voices get a little weathered. I didn't know if if this was like age weather that was happening to your voice or if this was sort of something you're pulling out, a special bag of trick, you know, trick out of your bag that that's a rustic voice, singing voice versus your normal kind of smoother R&B voice. Well, you know, it, it's a combination of all the, you, you, you really, okay. you, you really got this. Um, it's a combination of all those things. It's a combination of, of, as I've gotten older, my voice has be, been become more weathered, and I actually like it. And I've actually, yeah. I, I've actually gone there. I've, I've embraced it, and, and as opposed to being afraid of it and saying, "Sure, I've lost a little bit of my upper range," you know, my uh-huh. my flexibility might have might, but but I've compensated it by by knowing how to sing and knowing yeah. how to, you know, tell the story of a lyric, which is yeah. here again something I learned in Nashville and something that I've. I, I appreciate it among the country singers and the great songwriters that are here, like a way to, to really focus on lyrics and to tell the story. And the other thing is, uh, you know, I've, I've found things, you know, like really been very conscious of what keys I'm playing in mm. because there's certain keys where my voice finds a sweet spot. So these are all, you know, more sophisticated technical things that, that here again, my experience has, has come into play to, to help me. Good. Okay. Yeah, it it sounds amazing, and you're right. It's perfectly suited now for the music you want to make, anyway. You know, so yeah, the it, two it, are going it all together very together. well. That's right. Yeah, That's right. very cool. Okay, so I wanted to ask you a little bit too about the uh, about the book because so I'll tell you, I took my two older kids who at the time were nine and eight to your book mm-hmm. signing at the tattered cover here in Denver. Oh, okay. And yeah. we weren't the first people in line, but we were like the third or fourth people in line. And you were gracious enough to, you know, we bought a book and we've got a picture. And I got to tell you, my daughter, who was nine, she asked you what your favorite song was. And you said, she's gone. And then when we walked away, my son, who was eight, said, Dad, 
John Oates touched my back because you had, <laughs> you know, put your arm around him. So I just want you to know that I'm doing the best I can here to perpetuate the Hall and Oates, you know, legendary status with my own kids, the next generation. They love you too. That was a well, cool thanks, moment man. for us. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know what? That, that that stuff is important. You know, uh, and, I know. And I really, you know, good. I'm I'm glad. You know, I'm glad you could bring them. I'm glad they appreciated it. And uh, sure. You know, hey, this is how yeah. you know how I can this keep is how it, it works. That's right. Yep. There's my kids. Uh, they've been brought up on Hollow Notes. They're a huge fans. One thing that I was kind of taken with, not taken, but I realized as I'm reading the book, and again, I hope this isn't too insensitive of a question, but you probably know this. I think there might be a perception that you aren't doing as much or contributing to that partnership as you actually are. And when I'm reading the book, I'm hearing the stories behind all these great songs, and a lot of them I knew because I've been a huge fan of yours for my whole life, basically. But it it really solidified to me that John is an amazing songwriter and has contributed to so many of these hits, and I don't know that you get the credit you deserve for that. Do you? Do, is that too – I hope I'm not being <laughs> insensitive when I ask that, but I think that might be the perception. Do you ever sense that? Why do you think that is? Well, it, it, there's a lot of reasons for it. You know, one of the reasons is that Daryl is a very, um, you know, first of all, he's one of the greatest singers of all time. Uh, yep. You know, and I, I, I can I can say that confidently because I've stood next to him for 50 years and I know what yep. he can do and what, it, you know, the depth of his talent. It's, and it's tremendous. He's also a great songwriter. You know, him being the featured vocalist uh, in, the, in, our, in our partnership really puts the, uh, the, the, public, the public emphasis on, on him and his image. Uh, MTV certainly solidified that in a big way, too, yeah. because when you're the lead singer, you know, you're getting the lion's share of the, of the camera time and, you know, the focus. I mean, you know, just look at any band, really. I mean, yeah, look at know. you know, look at um, the Rolling Stones. I mean, you know, ninety mm-hmm. percent of the time it's Mick Jagger. You know, yeah. uh, whether it's on an album cover or in a video or you know, in, yeah. in the advertisements, it's the same with Aerosmith or you know, just take any any band. It's, it's yeah. always like. But anyway, and you know, he deserves it. I, I don't, you know, I don't have any problem sure. with that. And I, you know, I'm not really that. My ego is not is not that needy uh, to okay. have a kind of public adulation. You know, it's it's kind of the nature of our partnership. Um, you know, the nature of our our personalities. Really, it, it was dictated by our personalities, not by some kind of uh, mm. contract or written agreement or strategy. It was just just the way we are as people. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of contracts or strategy, one thing I wanted to ask you about was I was curious if. If there had ever been sort of an agreement put in place, like how many songs on an album you would sing or write or whatever. I mean, again, if you have Daryl Hall singing for you, then why wouldn't you let him sing most stuff because he's one of the best ever? But it, was that ever sort of a, a you know a spoken agreement or something contractual that John gets however many songs on an album? No, not at all. Okay. It, it, okay. It, was, it had more to do with the fact that I wasn't as prolific as Daryl. Daryl oh. just wrote more songs. Okay. Um, and he wrote a lot of great songs. So yeah. it was, I, I didn't really write that much. Um, you know, I didn't write as many songs as him. And even to this day, I don't, I don't write a lot of songs. But I try to mm. focus on writing really good ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just not. You know, I just don't crank them out like that. Uh, so that's just the here again. That's just a kind of a natural, a natural uh, evolution of our partnership. 
Yeah. Uh, here again, not not something decided by you know an agreement or anything like that. It's just the way it kind of worked. There was only one time when I believe that there was a question about it. Um, I had come up with the idea for Maneater, and I had the chorus. Uh-huh. Uh, eventually, Daryl and I got together and we wrote the entire song and finished it. And when we did, I just thought, well, okay, well, you know, this will be a good one for me to sing. We talked about it. We actually had a had a conversation. We were in a car somewhere, and we and and I remember him saying. Because this was at the time when we were having, you know, hit after hit. We were on top right. of the pop charts all the time. And I remember Daryl said, "Look, John, he goes, if you want to sing it, man, it's cool." He goes, "But I think this is number one record, and if I sing it, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a huge record." And I looked at him and I went, "You know what? You're right." Wow. And and so there you go. That's what that's happened. That's it. That's the only time. That's the only time we ever actually had a discussion about it. Okay. I think that's an amazing kind of layer of color to your relationship too. That he can say that, that you can agree, that you can know what that means, that he can know what he means when he says that. That's that's a pretty amazing partnership, actually. I think. Well, um, we, we be, I mean, believe it or not, we have a great relationship. I can't I can't actually believe it's 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 still going on, and that yeah. we still. But we don't, you know, we don't hang out. We don't really, right. you know, get together socially. We don't have a lot of contact on that level. Uh, but we don't need to because we're yeah. like brothers. We know each other so well. But when we get together and we play together, it's like it's like it's like putting on an old, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I hate to demean it by using this uh, analogy, but it's like putting on an old shoe that's really comfortable. No, yeah. I can imagine. And you two are very, you have highly independent streaks within you. Um, and I think this partnership only works if you're allowed the space to be who you need to be. You know, yes. And thankfully, and you both, had enough success both, both ways, like that. Yeah. Yes. And thankfully, you had enough success that you can walk away from each other for long stretches of time and not be in each other's, you know, grill all the time because you don't, you're not fighting for that next hit. You've established yep. yourself, and you can just, you've bought your freedom at this point. Um, something that I think it was really uh, telling about the book, and well, maybe it's telling. You tell me, is that it seems like in a lot of ways you almost relished. Being able to write and talk about things like skiing and cars and Colorado, more even than some of the music, or at least the, the 80s heyday that we all know. Is that because, again, it, I wondered if maybe the music industry was your work, but your passion, as much as music can be a passion and a creative outlet, you're, the things that get you excited are the things outside of work that take your mind off of that, just like most people would be. Is that accurate at all? Do you love those things or kind of get off on those things maybe at the stage in your life more than the music even sometimes? Well, the main thing that I wanted to do with this book is I wanted to tell my personal story. And the most difficult aspect of doing that was how do I dif- differentiate my personal story from the Hall & Oates story, which has really been the, 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 so much a part of my adult life. So it's a, it was a very that was a tightrope that I had to walk throughout the writing of the book, but especially at the beginning when I was first starting out to figure out, you know, because there's a lot of pressure from the publishers and from the public, you know, oh, okay, John's going to write the Hall and Oates story because, you know, now mm-hmm. we're going to find out all the gory details or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I really didn't want it. That was not the book that I wanted to write. Right. Um, so I constantly had to balance that. That, And I felt that, you know, these, these things like my athleticism, the skiing, cars, racing, all that is a really, really important to me and a big part of my personal life, and that's why I wanted to make sure I included them. You mentioned kind of glossing over the 80s, 
And to be honest with you, that was a very conscious uh, decision on my part. And I'll tell you why I, I did it that way. I felt like the 80s were so well documented by the, mm-hmm. the, by the ubiquity of the big hits mm-hmm. and also by the MTV videos and the fact that we were so popular and so huge during that time. I think that Daryl in my career is somehow really so identified and kind of defined by the, the, the magnitude of what we accomplished in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make people understand that there was a lot more to it, that the decade of the 70s was really... It was really the building blocks for what happened in the 80s. Yeah. And it's, it's well less, uh, you know, it's much less documented. It's much less no, uh, known. And I wanted to talk about that in detail because I felt like the story of how something becomes is right. much more interesting than the story, like, than the story of a victory lap, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I talked to um, a lot of people on here, too, and at the height of their fame, they're rushing around going from like radio station to gig to right. hotel to limo, right. they're not really fully experiencing what's even happening with them anyway. And you guys no, being bigger that, than everyone probably had that too. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, the, the decade of the 80s for me went by in such a blur that honestly I had no time to reflect on anything. So, so in the book, I kind of wanted to treat it the same way. I treated it, you know, it, you know some people might say, well, you know, you glossed over the 80s or you didn't detail the 80s. Well, I didn't because I almost can't remember the details of the case. So um, I wanted to give the, the I wanted to have that feel come across in the book that okay, this is a this is a rocket ship ride at supersonic speed, and that's how it was. I honestly feel that what the '80s deserves uh, is a separate book, probably just about the decade of the '80s, but from a very detailed technical production, you know, the actual recordings, how they went down, who played what, because we were, we were doing a lot of groundbreaking stuff on, in technology, with technology. And we were, you know, we had this incredible eighties band that was really just, just an amazing, you know, tight unit. Mm -hmm. I think that's a separate book. And that's, so that's why in my book, I decided to basically super speed over the eighties and can, and focus on the things that were more uh, important to me personally. That makes sense. I'd read that book in a second. And speaking of which, I will say one thing. I The the second CD I ever bought uh, back in the day when they first came out was, and you're going to have to finally correct this once and for all, Ooh Yeah or Oh Yeah? Which one? Ooh, is ooh Yeah. Ooh Yeah. Ooh Yeah. Okay. Yep. I have, I know that you mentioned in that, uh, Abandoned Luncheonette gets its own chapter. Ooh Yeah gets like one line saying that you're not into it. That That is a very sentimental favorite record of mine. I wanted to ask you about Keep On Pushing Love. I love that song. You wrote it. It closes out the album. Do you have any stories or any feelings? I know your heart wasn't in that album. Do you have a? Do you have any soft spots or, or fond feelings about that particular song? Hey, guys. Wanted to break in here for a minute with some bidness. Now, first and foremost, I should give you like a little introduction because I have a feeling we might have some new listeners this week, thanks to our guest. So I wanted to explain what sort of the mission of this podcast is. Uh, we, tr- we are trying to tell the stories that don't get told of as often about our favorite artists, especially now John doesn't quite qualify for this because he's been successful for a really long time. But what's going on with the littler guys? And what are those transitions like in your life when you're a struggling musician and then suddenly it starts to break and you have a moment, maybe you have one hit or a couple of hits or an album or two, 
and you're riding that wave. And then when that wave sort of comes to an end, as it does for pretty much everybody, what's that transition like? What is the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of rock stardom? And if you go back, here's what I always advise people. Go into the archives and look for a name that you recognize. Look for someone who was a member of one of your favorite bands. We've had people from Creedence Clearwater Revival, The Tubes, The Cure, Squeeze, XTC. We've had Russ Ballard. We've had Olita Adams. We've had John Parr. And that's Marshall Crenshaw. That's just this past year. So go in there and look for a name of somebody that you really like and uh, that piques your interest and listen to that. And if you like the the sort of the vibe or the approach or the style that we take here, go back into the archives and check out some other stuff. That is the story that we're trying to tell here. What are those transitions in people's lives like? How do you process them and how do you feel about them afterwards? Anyway, welcome to everybody, and I hope you go back in the archives find some things you want to hear. Now, I wanted to read. We only got one new review this week, but it was a really nice one. Um, that's another thing. Please go in there and write, a, write us a review if you'd like, good or bad. I will take it all to heart. Uh, Gordy Two Shoes. I <laughs> love that. That might be Gordon Hamill, um, a listener I communicate with sometimes. I've mentioned his name before. I don't know. There's bound to be more than one Gordon out there. Five stars. I love this show. John Lamoureux is insightful and draws out a lot of great stories from his guests. I found this show trying to find interviews with any Oingo Boingo members. Oh, okay. Found one he did with Johnny Vatos, who was unfocused. That's true. I think I've mentioned that one before. I had high hopes for that one. It kind of, it was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't the best. That's his words. But I found John interesting. Even if I'm unfamiliar with the artist, John tries to dig deep. I stuck with it, and now I can't wait for the next one. John seems to just love people and enjoys what he is doing. That's true. Thank you for saying that. That's what keeps me coming back to this every to this one every week. I really, uh, really appreciate that one, Gordy Two Shoes. Now, I want to get into some requests. Before I do, I had a couple of people turn me down this week, so they weren't requests, but I wanted to fill you in. First of all, when I had mentioned Talk Talk in that Q&A episode that Ian and I did, it got me thinking that I would, might try that again. So I went to Tim Freese Green, who, if you remember, was sort of an ancillary member of the member of the band. He was a big producer back in the 80s, did a lot of other stuff that I, would, that I liked. And in fact, he worked with Thomas Dolby, and prior guest Matthew Seligman worked with Thomas Dolby at the time. He knew Tim. So I reached out to Tim, and I think I'd done it before, but never heard back. Tim wrote me back and turned me down. He doesn't like to talk about his old recordings, which really bums me out because he's been on a lot of great stuff. So no go with Tim Freeze Green. And then also, I had this idea, and I've, I've reached out to him before too, but didn't hear back. Do you guys remember Leon Redbone? I remember him primarily from the really early days of Saturday Night Live. He wore a suit, had like a curly mustache. He wore dark shades, played like Dixieland music. Uh, very, you would know the the voice in a second. He sang the didn't he sing the, sing the theme song to Mr. Belvedere? So I've tried him a couple of times. I thought that might be an interesting story. Sadly, his people got back to me the other day, and I guess he's suffering from Alzheimer's, and so an interview is not going to happen. So that's a that's a little sad, but um, well, that's very sad actually. But that's the story with Leon Redbone. I thought that might be interesting, but I don't think it's going to work out. And then listener Dan Province gave a plus one to the refreshments, so I need to track those guys down. And then he had an idea. He, he, uh, he had heard me mention that how much I'd like to talk to Bruce Hornsby. He said, well, what about Joe Puerta? 
and Joe had been a member of Ambrosia. You guys know how much I hate giving away who upcoming guests are, but our guest in two weeks is Burley Drummond, the drummer for Ambrosia. So we're covering Ambrosia in two weeks. I had tried Joe Puerta a while back and never heard back. I also tried George Marinelli, who was his guitar player, Bruce Hornsby's guitar player. Uh, He is friends with Steve Eddie Rice. And um, I've tried to find George and I've never been able to find him. So, but we are going to cover Ambrosia in two weeks. And then Brian Morris came with some more uh, requests. The Jayhawks, that's a good idea. I will admit, I'm not the biggest Jayhawks fan, although I respect their um, songwriting ability. I, I respect them. I don't listen to them that often. But that's I've had them in mind, too. That would probably be a really interesting story. Mary Fall. Mary's, this is like, what, the third or fourth time she's come up just since starting to do these midsections? I got to do Mary Fall. I keep telling you, whenever someone requests her, I say, go look for the interview on the pods on Pods and Sods. It was great, and it covered all the bases I would cover. But uh, maybe there's still an appetite for more Mary out there. So I'll probably have to do that. She was the lead singer of October Project, if you don't remember. And then uh, he also mentioned Ellis Paul, who I don't know that much about Ellis Paul, but I saw him open for Marshall Crenshaw about 10 years ago, and he was great. And so that might be an interesting story. And then also Martin Sexton, who I really like Martin. I saw Martin in concert once at a folk festival in uh, Park City, Utah. Boy, this was, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like almost 20 years ago. He was great. So that's a really good idea, too. And then Martin McGarry, our new listener in Ireland, came back with some more uh, requests, many of whom were ones I also didn't know. But I want to mention a couple that I did. Uh, Pebbles, that might be interesting. I'm always trying to get more women on here. And even uh, women in R&B, even more interesting. So Pebbles would be good. Tone Loke. Tone Loke. That, That seems so on the nose. I should probably try and find Tone Loke. I haven't done it yet, but I guess I could. And then there's two here I wanted to talk about for sure. Robbie Neville. He is near the top of my wish list. I would love to talk to Robbie Neville. He, I think, is one of those people that is that keeps himself very distant from the media. He has a webpage, but th- the only communication he accepts through his webpages through his webpage are like people who want to send him their demo tape. Like I'm a singer and this is my demo and tell me what you think. Cause he's still out there doing music. In fact, he was very heavily involved. If I remember right in those high school musicals, but, uh, I've emailed, I've emailed that thing a couple of times. Like, Hey, I'm not a singer, but I am trying to get you on my podcast. I've never heard back. I don't know that I ever will. He seems like he's pretty mysterious on purpose. And then propaganda, I love Propaganda. They had an album in the 80s called A Secret Wish. It was produced by Trevor Horn, who you guys know I love. I have tried, really the only member of Propaganda I really want to talk to is Claudia Bruken, who was their original lead singer. Uh, We're Facebook friends, and I've sent her messages a couple of times and never heard back. And I'm hoping, I wish that would happen because she is married to Paul Humphreys from OMD. And he's the guy I would, I love OMD. I have every OMD album and uh, I would love to talk to him, especially because he's the one that left. 
And so that could be a really awesome double bill if it ever happened, but I've never been able to get in touch with either one of them. So that's the story on the requests, the recent requests. And then lastly, I got to do the shares. Uh, last week episode with Bill Janovitz of uh, Buffalo Tom got a lot of traction. So we heard, uh, we got some shares from Joe Royland, Sit and Spin, Suburban Underground, Grown Up Rock Podcast, and Sonny Pooney, Chad Rex, Bud Verge, Tom Neuerberg, uh, Mixtape Life, Save Rock and Metal, Jason Simons, I See Greg, Jay Sabluski, Carrie Carlson. Thanks all of you for sharing that episode. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And then finally, lastly, uh, the t-shirts. If you want to get a t-shirt of ours, I actually am wearing mine right now. I bought one recently, finally. It came. I happen to be wearing it right now. I got the gray one, the gray t-shirt. But you can go on to Amazon and just type in Hustle Podcast Merch or t-shirt or whatever, and uh, they're all there. There's hoodies and sweatshirts and long sleeve shirts and all these different options that are all different cuts, uh, prices, but the t-shirts are just nineteen ninety nine. So do what you want. Anyway, let's get back to John Oates. I, I love that song. I love the Good. song. I love, I love the lyrics. I felt like the record did not represent what that song really should be about. I think the production of the record was compromised so that it fit on with the, in, in the context of the rest of the songs. I, I play that song a lot. I play that song on my acoustic guitar, and I play Good. it completely different. I just have a whole different feel for that song. So okay. uh, it, it, to me, it, it should have been more poignant and more um, more R&B and more kind of, uh, yeah. you know, just it just to me, it was just the production was compromised so that it, it made sense on that record. Got so it. Okay. in that regard, it's not one of my favorite records, but it's still one of my favorite songs. I never mix up the fact that a song is not the same as a record. Sure. Okay. Got it. Yeah, I just I I have a soft spot for that record. Can I? I want to ask you about one or two other songs of yours in the time we have left. Mono a mono is such a blast. I love that <laughs> song. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, I think I was trying to tap into the 60s in that song. Really? Um, you know, in some way, the, the 80s, the decade of the 80s, had a lot to do with the 60s. There was a lot of 60s rock and roll influence in some of the music of the 80s. I think that the, in the 80s, yeah. younger artists, and not so much me because I was part of the 60s, but uh, younger artists who were coming up in the 80s, I think they... I think they tapped into the little bit of the of the, the sensibilities of the '60s in certain ways. I, that was like to me that was that was my version of a '60s song. Huh. Okay, 
I think that song's a blast. Um, now, maybe your finest moment, and I'm sure you'll argue, and you probably don't like anyone telling you what it is, but um, Had I Known You Better Then is one of the most beautiful songs ever. Were you ever so in love you couldn't wait to get to sleep in the dream About the one you wish was there inside you In the past few days I've grown Love the giggles on the phone And how we hug so nicely And from the first time that I saw you said those three old words in front of her. I wondered if there was a story behind that one. And you'll have to forgive me. I read your book back in April. So there may be a huge story that I'm forgetting from the book. But uh, uh, I think it's a yeah, beautiful piece of music. Yeah, that's a, that, that, there is a little story. There's an interesting story with that song. It was right around the time that Daryl and I were about to leave Philadelphia and move to New York. Just get, you know, we had made the whole Oats album by like kind of commuting from Philadelphia to record in New York and then back, then going out on the road and, Really, it was that period of time when we we knew we were heading to New York. And I remember walking down a street corner in Philadelphia. I was near Broad Street. There was a city bus, and it pulled up, and there was a gal in the window uh, right in front of me where the bus stopped, and I was standing on the street. And she kind of looked at me, I looked at her, and then the bus pulled away. And I had this really weird, like I had this kind of fantasy. I guess kind of, as I began to walk across the street, I said, wow, I mean... I, I, I thought to myself, I could have met her, and if I did, I, we could have, you know, we could have, there was something there. There was this magic and this glance and this moment, and I, I be, and basically invented a story. Had I known yeah. you better then, I would have said these yeah. three old words. You know, so it was like basically I, I, I used that, that very seemingly insignificant moment to create a, a, basically a, a, love, a love song around it. Okay. Yeah, I love that song too. Um, one more, Possession Obsession.
that's a total 80s song. That, that song is about the 80s. Oh, um, really? And I mean, because... I think it might the, be the highest charting song that you sang on. Of, of uh, you guys. It might be. Yeah, it probably, yeah. It probably is. Okay. Uh, that or how, do I, how does it feel to be back, probably. Yeah, true. But yeah. In the 80s, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, you know... Uh, thing that greed is good the, you know the, yeah. the person who dies with the most toys wins you know that whole mentality that's yeah. what that song is about I had a wow. had a very good friend who uh, I lived in Greenwich Village at the time and I had a very good friend who lived right around the corner he was a very high rolling kind of guy you know he went out with all the supermodels he had a Ferrari a house in the Hamptons and we were really good friends but you know it, it was like I kind of I kind of tapped into to kind of his mentality, even my my own mentality, because yeah. I was kind of caught up in the same thing, you know, uh, you know, having hit records, making money, uh, living the high life, going out with all these gals, and and yeah. you know, and you know, driving around in fancy cars, and the whole thing, you know, Lear jets. So uh, I, I was really, I think I was chastising myself mm. and observing what was going on around me, and that's what it okay. was about. Okay. I think yeah, I was I giving myself a warning. <laughs> Maybe. Something that we try to cover very sensitively on this podcast is sort of the business side of things, which you've been pretty open about, especially in your book, where at the end of the 80s, when you should be at the height, you're millions and millions of dollars in debt. You moved to Colorado as a means to sort of pay back some of that debt and sort of downsize your life. And I wondered if you could, if there was some kind of specific, what are some of the specifics about rebuilding wealth in that situation? Do you restructure a royalty deal? Do you start going back out on tour and saving money? How does someone build themselves back up from the bottom like that? I, and again, I hope that's not too sensitive a question, but I, our listeners know that that's kind of what we're interested in, is sort of, you know, these some of the little minutiae. But it's not too specific or too insensitive. Well, it's it's realigning my life, first of all, in Colorado and living a simpler life, not spending as much money, not being as extravagant, getting rid of the, car, the cars and the airplanes and the, the New York, lavish New York lifestyle. That was the first step. But the, okay. the real step in terms of the business side was I had, uh, I had befriended a, a guy who was the president of, of BMG, uh, who we were signed to through RCA and Arista. He and I became ski friends, ski buddies, and uh, in in the course of talking to him, he began to uh, tell the story of of what went on behind the scenes that Daryl and I weren't so aware of during the the the, the 80s, especially um, in terms of the kind of business deals that were made on our behalf that we weren't really uh, uh, aware of, and uh, I began to to ask him questions about. Hey, is there any way that we could possibly unwind this, you know, kind of uh, abysmal business situation that we found ourselves in? And he gave me some ideas, and he actually went to bat and helped us. He became an advocate, um, and then uh, he was getting ready to retire. And I think, from his point of view, I think he felt it was the right thing to do, and uh, you know, for himself and for me because we were friends. And then, you know, we got some lawyers involved and a manager involved, and we started to chip away at this very complicated set of uh, series of contracts that we had entered into uh, that were not really that good for us. Little by little, we began to recover portions of our rights and our royalties and our publishing. Uh, and that's how, you know, that, that's a very, very simple ver answer sure. to a very complex sure. story. Yeah, okay, understood. Um, one last question. What do you think accounts for these 
for the resurgence that Hall & Oates is experiencing at this point in your career? I mean, you go from being a popular favorite to maybe, and, and not maybe a critical favorite back in the day, to now being almost universally loved and loved and respected, Hall of Fame. What do you think, what, what caused that pivot in people's minds? Do you have a sense? Uh, I think there's a lot of things. I think that um, good songs endure. I think the the lack the the breakdown of the old traditional music business paradigm, where it was the big record companies in collusion with big uh, hit radio, in collusion with rock journalism, mm-hmm. all you know conspiring to tell to force feed people as what they should like, what is hip, what is good, that's all gone. And the newer generation of younger people. They make the decisions for themselves based on their friends, what they can find on the Internet. They have the access to the entire uh, history of music. And now these songs are, have, have really endured and people are real, appreciate them for what they are. No one's telling them that, you know, this artist is good or this artist is hip yeah. and this artist isn't. And also I had a lot to do with Daryl's TV show, uh, Live yeah. from Daryl's House. I think it really opened up... Uh, the catalog of what we've done showed uh, a younger generation that, hey, our, my contemporary musical heroes really like playing with Daryl Hall and the Hall & Oates band and playing the Hall & Oates songs. And all of a sudden, it, and then the fact that we continued to tour, never really stopped, and have an amazing band, it, it all started to just build and build. And that's really, I think, what's happened. Okay, I agree. Last thing, do you ever regret Pleasure Beach? <laughs> that was that was my that was my lame attempt at, at being a new wave artist. Was it? <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy song, but it's just out of you know, it's such a uh, an aberration compared to everything else, kind of in the catalog. I wonder. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, I was working with I was working with a lot of new wave artists down in the village and and kind of going to clubs and, and listening to all these new bands. And I said, oh, I'll, I can write a song like that. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, John, I could do this for hours if you can't tell, but I just want you to know I love you so much. You're part of the the thread of my life. I can't remember a moment where I didn't know and love Hall & Oates. You've impacted my life more than you will ever, ever, ever know. 
So thank you for being you and for talking thank, to me. I love you so thanks, much. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was a really good interview, and um, good. We'll, be at the Pepsi, we'll be at the Pepsi Center this year. Oh, I'll be there. There you have it, John Oates. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I liked it. I, for what it was, uh, given how little time we had, I felt like we hit all the big beats. So I'm really happy about that. I had been trying to make this happen for a couple of years. Either him or Daryl, or I really want to talk to their saxophonist, Charlie DeChant, because he's iconic, and you don't hear saxophones in music anymore. So I was really glad that we finally were able to get some time with John. And uh, I can hear, I can understand if you're a little skeptical of the new album, Arkansas, which comes out this Friday, because I was there too. But let me tell you, I had a chance to hear it, and it's really good. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, he's part of the most, the best, most innovative pop acts of all time. Do I really want to hear this guy that did something so well change directions in this Americana roots-based music genre? Well, he, all I can tell you is that he brings that same level of craftsmanship to the new music as well. It is worth your time. I enjoyed it. I think you will enjoy it too. So I should say thank you also to the people at Wolfson Entertainment, Jonathan Wolfson, Katie, Kat, Christian, all the people who I bugged for two years to make this happen. <laughs> Thanks everybody for, for making it happen with me. Next week, I want to give you a, a teaser. We're going to do a couple more weeks here of sort of that soft rock, almost yacht rock of the 70s vibe. Uh, next week is the front man for a classic yacht rock band. If you were to look up that term in the dictionary, you would probably see this band's photo. That's who we're going to talk to next week, okay? So I hope you will come back and check that out with us next week. Also, I want to close it out here with another John Oates song that I love. This is Back Together Again. This is one of my favorite songs of theirs. Definitely one of my favorite John Oates songs for sure. Uh, the Business, you guys know it by now. You can find us on Facebook and like the page. You can send us a message on there if you want. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, I take requests. I'm I'm kind of inundated with requests right now, not to mention the things I'm already pursuing on my own. So uh, it might be a while before I can get to some of them, but you're welcome to send me ideas of shows, people you love that you don't hear from often enough that you'd like to get on the show. Tell me who those people are. I'll see if I can track them down. We'll try and get them, try and get them on here. And then, as always, huge thanks to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy, for everything you do. We will talk to you guys next Tuesday.